Welcome to the Smoke and Rope Podcast, the show that brings together Michigan's top cannabis growers, advocates, and business owners to offer a fresh and honest perspective of Michigan's cannabis industry. Stick with us to get the lowdown from the people who have been on the ground floor of cannabis business in Michigan and gain insights into where the industry may be heading. Welcome to the Smoke and Rope Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Basor. And today is episode 98, uh, two more away from the elusive 100 straight weeks. So it's getting there. It's getting there. And today, excited to finally have on uh, my uh, building mate and good friend, James McGilly from Cobra Law. James, thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Bass. Thanks for having me. Yeah, awesome. Um, for any of you, uh, you know, Better Call Saul fans out there, it is not James McGill, uh, but James is quite a talented attorney, though. So, so. Slipping Jimmy. Yeah. <laughs> so um, uh, with us today, Kevin over at True. I just saw Kevin. Just We just both came from the uh, MACIA luncheon over at the Kellogg Center, and that was, was pretty awesome seeing everybody. And uh I know there's some listeners from that on their way home now that said they'd be listening. So what's up, everybody? Um, Kevin, uh, what's going on? What'd you think of the event? Uh, you know, honestly, I think the event uh, are getting better and better each time we have one. Um, you know, it, it, for any of our listeners that don't know or aren't aware of the MICIA, I mean, it is quite the resource to be able to network with, uh, I believe Robin said, uh, over 400 business <coughs> uh, businesses uh, now in, in the membership. And, uh, and I tell you, every time I go, I meet somebody new and extend that network. And, and in this industry, uh, you know, cannabis is very rare in, in the fact that uh, relationships really drive the business here. So to have that resource uh, is great. The food was good. The speakers were good. And uh, I look forward to the next one. So, yeah, everything was great. Yeah, I will uh, reiterate that. I saw some obviously old friends and learned some stuff, but talk about networking. Um, Definitely made some great connections with some some stores there as well um, for redemption products. So, but uh, with that, I wanted to give uh, give James a, a longer introduction uh, for those that, that don't know um, kind of the background. I met met James a while back. I was um, coming into to Covert Law back at the old building a lot, working with uh, Nick and a new Josh forever. And James was in there and uh, had a very uh, mature presence which uh, was good uh, and uh, um, was was jamming out right away doing a lot of uh, you know basically like getting people qualified uh, you know doing all the the um, the application work for for the most part along with um, before that uh, James can get into it but um, you know one of his specialties or especially was trademark trademarking attorney so what a, what a great combination um, we're gonna talk about that today we haven't talked about that on the show yet and it's uh, there's a lot of misconceptions about that, but uh, it's going to be a great resource to talk about. But um, soon, um, uh, Nick Nick left, and uh, you know I moved into uh, James's old office. He got the uh, he got the penthouse with the view up front, and uh, he deserves it. And uh, you know we uh, we started working. I saw James every day. It's been a pleasure um, uh, getting along. Uh, been great coexisting with all the different clients and referrals and you know asking marijuana questions to a, an attorney that knows right in the building and then you know hopefully I can give some uh, give some 
some of my expertise to some of James and his clients too. But we always talk about the market and it's been great. And fast forward, uh, James and I and Josh uh, Cover bought um, 920 North Washington together. And that's where we've been. Uh, I love it here. And uh, James is, is right upstairs. So um, really appreciate you being on. Uh, you know, there's going to be lots of good stuff to talk about, but um, you know, obviously you're, you weren't born in Michigan, but you're a Michigan guy now. And, uh, tell us, uh, tell us about your kind of your childhood, how you grew up and what got you, got you here. Yeah. Thank you, Ryan. Um, so I was going to say, I'm zooming in from halfway across the parcel today. Um, <laughs> literally upstairs from Ryan. You can probably tell from the wood trim, uh, Ryan behaves himself for the most part. He, uh, tends to <laughs> clean up after himself and keep, yeah, Kevin's not convinced, but, uh, I've definitely seen a change in base. I don't know if that's because of the new edition lately, or he's a married man. He can't get away with quite as much. Um, but base, <laughs> base, is a, base is a pleasure to be around. Uh, and as he alluded to, uh, he's been a tremendous uh, resource uh, for things that I didn't have experience of. You know, the MICIA, base has been a part of that since forever. Um, and base knows everyone. So if I have questions, uh, I turn to base. If it's about the market or if it's about things that I think he has some valuable insight for, and as he said, if he has legal questions, you know, usually there's one or two of us around here that can uh, address that on the hurry. And that seems to be pretty helpful for base and some of his uh, contacts and his group of networks. Um, but yeah, so I, I originally am from England. I grew up in Canterbury, which uh, is a town in the southeast of England, sort of between London and Dover. Um, it's a very old town. It's got a, it's a cathedral city, it has a, a wall, a Roman wall all the way around it. So it's kind of cool. Um, so I, I kind of, Came from that uh, background. I went to uh, public school back in England, uh, grammar school, and did the usual things, played some basketball, played some soccer, played some cricket, um, studied hard. I mean, it's kind of lame, but you know, here I am kind of reaping the benefits. So I'm sort of glad I did that. Um, had some friends that, you know, didn't take it as seriously and I'm glad I did. So, um, but since then I went off to, uh, to university and I studied English literature. Just, I've always been a fan of, of reading and novels and writing. Um, but I did that for a while and then kind of I reached a road, a crossroads, wasn't sure really what to do with that. Um, so back in England, it's possible to sort of transition from any degree, any undergraduate degree to a law degree. So that's what I did. Um, and it's a, a relatively simple process. You do a couple of years of additional training. Um, and then after that, um, the UK legal system for, well, it, not to get too technical, but it kind of splits at that point. So you can either be a barrister, somebody that goes into court and makes the argument so you can be a solicitor on the other side and they tend to do the paperwork. So I decided to go for the solicitor route um, and the way they do it there, there's no bar exam. So they do more of an internship. And so you get an opportunity to work with a firm and you can work in either two or four or six different departments, you know, for a period of time during that two years. And you can get a sense of what that work would entail. If it's for you, if you like the people around in that uh, area of law, um, and then you can choose something entirely different, you know, if none of that was for you. So I did that in London and had a good old time. It was a good experience. Um, but at that point, um, I had met uh, my wife, Tiffany. So the Michigan connection is because my wife, Tiffany is from here. Um, she went to, uh, to Holt and to Okemos and then she went to MSU. So, um, but I actually, I met her when she was living in New York. So it was a roundabout way of saying that we, we met, got married. And then uh, we decided we weren't really going to stay around in, in New York and, and the city. I'd lived in London. Um, she and I both lived in New York and we were thinking that we'd probably be better off somewhere in the middle. So for me, Lansing is pretty much ideal as far as uh, amenities and population and seat of government. 
Um, and so we moved here in 2008. So that was right around when the MMMA was coming out. So um, I initially would help a few caregivers and patients here and there um, with questions that they had. I mean, as Base and, and Kevin both well know, it was all very new. Uh, all the rules were, it was pretty much the Wild West uh, when it first came out. So Lansing was a very interesting place to be during 2009, 2010. Uh, I can see oh, yeah. thing and Kevin both. Yeah, he, he knows all about that. So there were a few dispensaries where I got to know the owners and help them out with some various issues and things. Um, and then that all kind of led up into uh, 2016 and the MMFLA coming around. Um, so that was my initial kind of meeting with base was shortly after that. I think I joined Covert Law in 20, August 2018, maybe. Yeah, so maybe yep. it would have been about a year after Base had kind of been on the scene, yeah. um, and Base was obviously working hard and making a name for himself. Um, and yeah, Base and I, I would say, fast friends. You know, a decent guy uh, knows what he wants, knows how to get it, knows how to treat people. So I, I see him continuing to be very successful in whichever chosen career paths or avenues of, of business and networking that he decides to get into. Um, but yeah, so I've been here at Covert Law. Uh, changed uh, this at the start of this year I was partners with Josh who was last week's guest um, and then Josh got a job offer that he couldn't turn down and so uh, Josh and I came to an agreement and I sort of took it over 100% so that was around the same sort of time that we'd been in the building a few months um, mm -hmm. so everything's you know kind of getting settled down as far as what each of you know, Ryan's and Josh's and my respective roles are going to be going forwards um, but uh, so far with the licensing work, you know, it, it, it's going very well, you know, it's, it's been successful. Um, you know, Base will tell you stories from the pandemic about how, you know, very little could get done in Michigan if it wasn't cannabis connected for some reason. You know, if there was a point during the lockdowns, which and people from Indiana, you know, they, they we have clients from Indiana, they don't understand that Michigan was under lockdown where you had to have a good reason to be outside. Um, but one of those good reasons was you, if you were going to a dispensary to get some medical marijuana, if you got pulled over, the police would have to cut you loose and let you go. So it was kind of a magical time for a while. Um, maybe not for everyone, but just from that perspective. Yeah, yeah I, I, th I forgot about that. We were telling that and uh, I, yeah, speaking of that, that was what, what we made out of it. For, but for the marijuana world in Michigan, you know, uh, you know, it kind of shot us ahead too. Um, so. It is what it is, but yeah, no. Tell us about it's a it's a great great build up, and I didn't know actually you were in in Lansing back in two thousand and ten and eleven. We probably probably crossed paths at some point, um, um, but yeah. So you know you got a lot of clients. I know like one thing uh, people don't some don't always understand at, at our office. Like you know we're we're balls of the wall all the time. We'll be, you know, zoomed up and appointments and paperwork and meetings for two weeks in advance sometimes. And I know you're that busy too. Um, and a lot of it's, a lot of it's new people, um, or clients. Let's, uh, I wanted to get into the, that type of work, but tell me, uh, first off, like what, what are you seeing as far as new people coming in, wanting to get licensed? Um, is that, uh, you know, how many people of that are still calling uh, an attorney in Michigan that's uh, for marijuana? Um, that's a great question. Yeah, th there's still some interest. So, you know, it hasn't tapered off entirely. Um, there, there was a slowdown, I would say, um, in the last maybe six months. I mean, maybe that's just my practice and, and people that I've been speaking to, but you know, there are still licenses being issued left and right by the regulator. And I, I think that's a specific issue. Uh, that's a, a 
it's um an interesting aspect to the Michigan licensing structure that um, there there won't be any statewide caps. Now, and then for people who are in the know, um, the licensing is pretty much determined at the local level in terms of how many different types of facilities or operations um, will be licensed in that uh, specific municipality. So it kind of sets a sort of artificial cap on the number of operating facilities. And uh, this is in contrast, you know, other states that have were maybe a couple of years ahead of Michigan um, and a couple and some states that followed afterwards. So like Oklahoma, pretty much the Wild West. I mean, I'm, I'm sure Ryan's familiar with that, where the application fee is next to nothing. Pretty much everyone is eligible. And so mm -hmm. it's just a question of, you know, the survival of the fittest. And so I guess that gets expressed in terms of uh, the quality of the product, um, the investment capabilities of the different operators, you know, how well they can build up their facilities, how well they can build their networks and their distribution points and how well they can keep and retain customers. Um, but there's probably going to be some pretty good attrition in, in that market, I would think, within the next couple of years to come. And so people do ask. I mean, I just got off a call before the podcast from somebody that's up in the, the Western Upper Peninsula. And uh, their municipality, I guess, essentially had been threatened with a lawsuit that it didn't think it could successfully defend. And so they pretty much rolled over and they added a couple of additional adult use retailer uh, licenses that would become eligible. And so this was somebody that was looking to open up a micro business in, in that uh, market. They're just very worried about the declining price, the wholesale price of cannabis flower in Michigan and uh, some of the pricing that the, the current operators, the adult use operators up there are, are selling at and the, uh, the prospect of increased competition, you know, even if one more retailer um, joined down the street, you know, and they had a different pricing structure from the, uh, the original spot, then that's going to influence the both of their um, both of their pricing and what they can offer to customers, e even with their proximity to uh, the uh, to um, Wisconsin and Minnesota states that don't currently have adult use licensing the way that Michigan does. Um, for a while, you would kind of think that that was a, a bulletproof situation. You know, if you were able to sell licensed flour at a reasonable price point with mm -hmm. variety and, and and quality, and it was lab tested and you had knowledgeable bud tenders and it was a good customer service experience, which I think is always going to shine. That's always going to be where the value is. Um, then you would think that they would just be, and, and some of them are, you know, the parking lots are full. They're just selling out. But even that, those types of situations are fa facing some pressures and some of those pressures are artificial. You know, additional licensing um, can obviously increase competition and that has a knock-on effect. Um, but um, the, the pricing of flour is something that's on quite a few people's minds. And I, I guess that's a tough one to, when people ask, you know, where do you think it's going to end? It's kind of a tough one to answer because without any specific caps on licensing, there could literally you know, be a Starbucks on every corner um, in terms of marijuana sales or cannabis sales. So it's, it's going to be up to the communities to kind of keep an eye on what's, what level of, uh, of um, uh, what would you say penetration of uh, retail uh, locations and then I, I just think ultimately it's going to come down to the customer service experience the types of products and then the price points after that um, because people have different appetites there's always going to be somebody that's looking for a, a more reasonably priced uh, product you know that they can buy maybe in bulk and take back to their, their places of residence um, if they're out of state you know they might want to stock up on something that they might not be able to get in their home uh, state but um it, it, I think it's going to be interesting that the next probably year or two, I would think, um, will be, I think, quite instructive in, in the future of Michigan cannabis, whether there'll be kind of ultimate consolidation and everything just turns into vertically integrated situations. 
or if there will still be a, a place for smaller operators, for the micro-business operator. Um, I'm looking forward, frankly, to seeing the first Class A micro-business operator, somebody that can get a chance to play around with 300 plants, and maybe they can maybe do a little bit of breeding potentially and come up with some specific strain that has you know a, a good story behind it and that they could pass down you know, to their, their descendants and, and keep the business going that way. Um, but I'm not aware of, of anyone who's even applied for that Class A, but that's an, another license that came in in March that allows a, a sort of different approach to, uh, to retail. So hopefully there's a place for everyone at the table because obviously the demand and the appetite for good quality cannabis at a reasonable price point is always going to be there. Um, and that's been demonstrated you know, through the black market before 2008. It'll be the case in 10, 50, 100 years time. So I hope that the states like Michigan don't do things that will uh, prevent the participants from being successful because I think that's really the, the value is not just making money for the state and revenues and, and tax dollars and uh, local municipalities doing well, but uh, individuals and families, because you know this is a real opportunity for people to build something important and valuable and long lasting from the ground up. So as long as the regulations kind of keep uh, keep pace with, with those goals, I think that as long as you have some hustle and you, you're determined and you uh, you plan and you follow through, I think that still think everything is possible in Michigan. It's, uh, besides like owning something uh, other than a micro business back yeah that's a good point james i love uh talk we love talking about the market here and obviously me and you as well and that class a micro uh you touched on it's pretty fascinating they're going to be able to uh you know buy everything but the flower so all of a sudden at the retail level so you know as redemption as a brand those are the places that you know i would i want my concentrates in because i i align with those small guys and, uh, and and gals, and if someone's super talented and is going to go after it, that might be a license that, that works, especially if it's in a good spot. You know, it is it is uh, it is a great spot. And interesting to hear you talk about some of the the uh, pressures coming on some of the border towns. Was for a while there, um, you, all you had to do was open up, and it was just a stream stream of people. Um, so um, yeah, man. Uh, the guy was just i'm sorry to interrupt base the guy I was talking to he said that you know he, he drives past the the one retailer that's in his um in his town right now mm -hmm. and he said you know more than 50 percent of the license plates will be from the neighboring the neighboring states so yep. wisconsin minnesota so there's still demand and appetite for that and obviously you know those customers will go back to their state and they'll say whether they had a good experience at a particular location or had a bad experience yep. And that, that word, you know, that kind of um, resource and, and feedback is every bit as valuable as the most expensive billboards, you know, that a retailer could put up or a celebrity endorsement. You know, I, I think that people's individual experiences and, and how they get treated as customers is, is going to really make the difference between uh, those uh, locations that do well and flourish and are able to spread out and those that aren't as successful in this market. Yeah, that's that's a good point because we've really seen speaking of those border towns as you know I've been targeting border towns for a while because you know I'm, it's a great way to sell cannabis to people from out of state and, and get your brand out there and and sell a lot of it um, and you know good sell through but you know I know we pushed for it hard to you know there was like people were getting large large margins on the border towns and so people would come in be paying twice as much sometimes as if they went you know drove another hundred miles so that's kind of that has that has leveled out those prices they're starting to compete now and what a better experience it is for for all those people coming in 
from out of state. And all that means is more people are gonna come and more people are gonna come. And I expect this Memorial Day weekend just to be off the hook for Michigan cannabis sales. I hope Brisbo uh, um, puts out a bulletin like he did for 420 and tells us how much we sold because I expect it to be great. But uh, Kevin, I know you had a question. Well, it was an off-topic question, but I was curious when uh, James had talked about uh, growing up in England, what their policies are on cannabis there and, and what reform looks like uh, over the, over there right now. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question, Kevin. Um, so I, I will say as a disclaimer, I haven't kind of lived in England for probably 18 years now. I really had to think about that. Um, yeah, I left uh, or moved out of England in 2000. I wasn't kicked out. I moved out of England in 2004. <laughs> <laughs> um, at, at that time, you know, cannabis was considered class A and cl class A is up there with the worst, it's schedule one. So that was the same as heroin, cocaine. Um, I'd be honest, I'm not sure if it still remains at the, the, the most restrictive kind of schedule or class of, of, of drugs. Um, England, I do, I do know that England's kind of gone through a, a transition where it's, it's been willing to re-examine whether or not that is an appropriate place for cannabis to, to be situated. Um, but I do not believe at this time that England has any kind of statewide medical system uh, where you could go see a doctor and, and get some sort of permission and the results in a, a physical card, you know, to go to a dispensary. There's, there certainly aren't dispensaries, but if you went to see, you know, your local supplier, your local apothecary, you know, uh, down at the pub or wherever it might be, um, you know, if you got, if you interacted with a policeman on the way back, you know, your mileage is going to vary depending on wh which town it is, how busy they are, if there's, you know, something more important going on. Um, but it, it was still quite a serious offense, you know, at the time that I lived there. All right. Well, go ahead, Kevin. No, you're good. Go ahead. No, I wanted to. It's all right, man. Time's flying. So I, I had a couple other things I was going to talk about there, but we'll go back to them uh, just in case time gets away from us. I wanted to talk to you about uh, trademarking and trademarking cannabis because we haven't talked about that on the show. Um, uh, let's get into that. Like uh, what you did, like I know you did that. You specialized in it somewhat before marijuana and learned about it. And how has that been on such a good fit? And tell us about what what it looks like to trademark marijuana in Michigan and then federally. Yeah, thank you, Bass. Um, well, let's start with Michigan because that's what, where it's happiest, I guess. Um, so Michigan is very sophisticated and very receptive to cannabis trademarks. Um, it's possible to get a cannabis trademark oh, for straight up flour, straight up rosin, distillate, vape cartridges, edible products. You know, if, if it fits within one of the classes of goods of which there are 50 or 51 for trademarks, um, then Michigan will register it if you can pr uh, provide proof of the packaging that, um, that it come, the product comes in um, and is offered for sale to the public. Um, so you don't necessarily have to prove that there was a sale, but you have to prove that there, there is packaging um, that is um, representative of how the product would be offered for sale within Michigan. And then um, you provide some information to the state about where and when in Michigan you first made available this product. Um, so specifically for cannabis, you know, for adult use, you know, I mean, that date probably cannot be before December 6th. I think it still is 2018. Um, that's when adult use uh, cannabis and Murtma kicked in. Um, so if I was the trademark registrar, you know, I would potentially, I mean, I could see how I'd have a question if somebody said they were selling adult use flour in 2010. Um, you know, that, that might be something that would uh, be a red flag for me, but, you know, I'm on the other end of it. So... Um, is that's not the case for medical flour because since the passage of the MMMA um, since 2008, you could have offered for sale to your uh, patients 
And at a time when there were um, gray market, shall we say, dispensaries, certainly in Lansing and many other towns, um, it was important even back then to differentiate products one from another. So people would have packaging, people had branding, people had logos. And as the years went by, those became much more valuable. You know, there was a certain, it's the whole idea with trademark law is that if you see two, two different products on a shelf and you recognize one from a, a prior good experience, you're probably going to want to seek that out again. And that's essentially what the trademark laws are, are trying to protect is that no one is confused as a consumer. So um, with like parodies of things, uh, which Bass and I have kind of discussed around, round and around recently, <laughs> but uh, with, oh, uh, with logos and things, you know, the idea being that you can't have something that's so similar or, or confusingly similar to another registered trademark that a customer could potentially get confused or the bud tender, you know, might reach for this product, this pack, that has a logo that's very, very similar to a, to a different one. Um, so that those are some of the principal benefits of trademarking is that you can protect the, the, the goodwill, the hard work, the sweat, you know, the, the customer loyalty that you built up through everything outside of the logo, all the hard work and hustle that, you know, made those products uh, valuable to, to your customers, to your patients, to the public at large, you want to protect that. And in Michigan, it's surprisingly affordable. Um, I mean, if you take away my fee, it's surprisingly affordable. I, even with my fee, it's still pretty affordable. Um, it's $50 uh, per trademark application. So one thing that's probably worth just, I guess we're going back to the pandemic here. Um, there was a point in, I want to say like early 2020, where you could apply on the same piece of paper, the same application, you can apply for both medical and adult use products. So if you had a product that was available for sale in both of those markets, you could knock that out on the same application. I guess around that time, the state of Michigan maybe noticed that lots and lots of people or more people than before were applying for cannabis trademarks. And I guess they put it together. They were leaving money on the table. So they soon after differentiated out from medical applications to adult use applications and basically collected twice the fees. You can't get too mad at $50, um, but it is just something where people have to submit two applications where there was a point in time where they could submit one. Um, but Michigan's um, trademark registrations are good for 10 years. And so if you are able to secure that registration, you can, uh, you can be assured that you have valuable protected intellectual property rights that you can use and you can exploit. I mean, the, the term exploit in trademark law is like making use of. It's not where you're exploiting like somebody's you know, good nature or somebody's time, but um, that's just the way they phrase it. Um, but the 10 year period of protection is pretty generous. And there, there will be a registration online so that anybody else who comes after you, they can see if, if, you're, if that particular words or phrasing or uh, imagery, if that has been taken or, or selected and registered by somebody else. So um, there is a bit of a dance if you're going to be trademarking things like a company name. Um, there's, a, there's a preferred kind of sequence that you apply in where you can get both a company name, or I should say assumed name, um, you can get that. And you can also have a trademark that's um, essentially the same as a company name if you do it in the right order. Um, but Michigan has, has been good about that. Um, the, the trademark uh, registration, like it's, it's all done by the corporations division, but if, if something's wrong on the form or if they're missing some information, um, they've gotten much better at reaching out and uh, emailing and uh, uh, telephoning um, the applicant or the, their attorney or the person that submitted it. And they can usually correct whatever's wrong um, over the phone and they'll just submit the application as corrected. Um, they, don't, they don't have to send it back so that they minimize delays in that respect. Um, but Mi Michigan probably takes 
three, three to four weeks after you submit um, to review and approve a, a trademark. And then they publish it on their website. And from there, you, you are telling all the world that that particular trademark is registered and protected in Michigan. It, it is only valid within the boundaries of the state of Michigan. So um, we, we can kind of transition to federal trademarking uh, at this point. It's probably a good uh, time to do it. So federal registrations for cannabis are a, a less generous. Let's just put it that way. Um, it is possible to register non-cannabis goods um, in the federal system. So if you had, and as people who follow, you know, companies like Jungle Boys or Cookies or any number of other kind of bigger national companies, um, they go ahead and, and submit a bunch of registrations for ancillary products, things that they that don't they don't sell necessarily, um, or they don't sell in as big a number as they do the cannabis side of things. But things like you know T-shirts and hoodies and sweatshirts, um, tote bags, lighters, flip flops, you know, you name it. Um, companies will submit registrations for these to the, to the federal uh, United States Patent Office um, at this time because what they're trying to do is basically stake their claim to, to those words so that in the future when um, cannabis is hopefully, hopefully soon federally legalized and it's um, a, a commodity that can be bought and sold the same way that you know, soy or corn or anything else could be bought um, in the US, I mean, subject to uh, applicable restrictions, but in that same sort of vein, they will go ahead and submit a registrations for cannabis products themselves. And the idea is that the more registrations they have for other products, you know, the easier it is for them to say, well, we're really kind of ring fencing what, what our sphere of, uh, of economic activity is here. You know, if, yes, we sell lighters, but we also sell cannabis now. And, and once they can get a registration for that, then they most definitely will. Um, and it will prevent um, operators or individuals from other states being able to sell knockoffs and bootlegs and things and, and having those available. Even the packaging sometimes. I mean, I'm sure the market for like knockoff Jungle Boys Mylars and Cookies Mylars is through the roof. Um, and so federal protections for that sort of thing will help those companies shut down like counterfeit imports at the border um, because that would be a, um, an infringing product, you know, that somebody was trying to import into the US. And so there would be protections for those uh, those companies that have invested lots of time and effort and resources into selecting and, and maintaining and enforcing um, valuable intellectual property rights in their names and logos because that's all it takes. You know, if you sort of see that those golden arches, you know, when you're getting hungry, if you see those golden arches, you coming up the, on the freeway up to the exit. You know, if you know that's what you want, and you see that. You know, you're going to make that exit, and you're going to go in and get some of that. So if you see a you know Jungle Boys next exit. Um, you probably you like Jungle Boys or cookies, you know, you're going to definitely make, uh, make an opportunity to go and get some of that product. So federal registrations, they'll take a whole fuck ton longer than Michigan does. So currently um, they're, they're shooting for, I think, seven, seven and a half months after submission for them to basically get around to looking at it. And they are not even there. So I've had a few that are coming up on eight months and they have been accepted by the, the federal registration authority. Um, but they have not yet been examined or looked at. Um, and so they attribute this to an up, uptick in applications that um, happened during the course of the pandemic. But even so, I mean, the, you know, if there are people hiring, it should be the federal trademark uh, office because they are woefully behind. And I can only see more and more people submitting applications, especially if they're doing it for like multiple things, lighters, t-shirts, hoodies. If you're submitting 10 registrations in for different classes of goods, so that you can basically get this, you know, you can basically get this whole area of um, of protection, you know, under this one name for a multiple different products. 
that's just going to clog the system up even further. So if there was a federal legalization tomorrow, you know, the, the uptake and the onslaught of cannabis registrations would probably cripple the system. I don't know, but yeah. currently federal registrations take a long time. And so you just have to be patient. Uh, you just have to make sure the application is correct. So there aren't delays because it's delayed enough as it is. Um, but once you get that protection that comes through, then you are able to exploit that mark in all 50 contiguous states. Um, now, some registrations that you can do now include hemp. So since 2018, you can definitely get a federal trademark registration for hemp seed. And anyone who's listening who knows what that means, you know, that's indistinguishable from cannabis seed. So if you can get a federal registration for your hemp hemp seed company, then you can sell throughout the US um, under that trademark. And then nobody could federally register a competing or, or identical name. Um, so that's pretty much the over overview. I mean, federal registrations are preferable because you can sue in, in all 50 states if there's infringement in you know Montana or, or Oregon or Miami or Florida, sorry. Um, you can take that infringer to court in any one or any, multiple of those states, perhaps. Um, but a Michigan registration is limited to the state of Michigan. So you pretty much have to bank on the infringement happening in Michigan to bring that person in front of a Michigan judge where you could get some remedy. Um, but federally, you'd be able to choose venue. And so somebody doing this in Montana wouldn't be an impediment the way it would be if all you had was a, a state of Michigan registration. So James, you rolled right into my, my uh, question was that that's on enforcement. You know, I know that um, that uh, that the cookies brand uh, has, has has put out some letters uh, on the, the Gary Payton strain. Um, and what's the what's the enforceability look like right now? And then uh, talk to me a little bit about registering a name. So a strain was created by somebody, right? That seed was created. They named it Gary Payton, who wasn't Gary Payton, but now Gary Payton's in the weed game. He wants to register his strain, but his strain's already been all over the world. How can you then restrict people from growing that strain or selling that strain or naming it Gary Payton? Yeah, it's a great question, Kevin. I mean, I think ultimately, if if he's making those seeds available and it's all like, let's say they have a breeding project and there's a Gary Payton, you know, 2.0 or something. Um, then if he's making available those seeds for, uh, for resale and for cultivation, right? That's what the seeds are for. I mean, maybe somebody would buy them just for the novelty value, you know, the way that the Spanish seed banks kind of indicate that the seeds are designed to be, to be purchased and kept for novelty values only. Um, but if somebody were to germinate those seeds and grow it out, um, I think ultimately Gary Payton can't really stop somebody from growing the seeds out. But if somebody were to try and sell it under that trademark or using the, the trade name Gary Payton, um, they would potentially, well, they would be subject to uh, a lawsuit from his, his attorneys, um, especially if they were advertising online and using interstate commerce. You know, that usually when you put anything online and you implicate the federal um, crim like judicial system, I should say. Um, so he would have grounds to, to shut down the sale of product that was branded under that. But if you buy the seeds and grow them out, you know, it's the same way. No, it's not it's not quite the same with like monsanto and like the genetically modified and patented kind of you know seeds where if it blows onto a neighboring farmer's land they can be sued if that catches and, and, and germinates but if you purposefully cultivate his seed and grow it out for yourself you never sell it i don't think there's really much that he could do to come after you but if you're if you're selling cannabis flour in a pre-packaged branded mylar that says gary payton all over it and you're making that available for sale in michigan you know, Gary, it, it's going to be harder for Gary Payton to do that federally because of the scheduled nature of cannabis. Now, if he was selling hemp flour instead, he would be able to get a registration for hemp flour 
under the trademark Gary Payton. And probably Gary Payton is one of the only people in the world that would be able to get the, the trademark. Well, somebody called Gary Payton is the only person that could probably get the trademark Gary Payton. But there is only one the glove. So, um, you know, Gary Payton would probably have the rights to uh, enforce or to, uh, yeah, to enforce his trademark rights and registration um, if it was for fe federally, if it was for hemp flour or hemp seeds or hemp derived products. Now that will change, you know, like we've been discussing when, when cannabis becomes federally legal and Gary Payton will be first, I'm sure first in line to get a federal registration for cannabis flour, cannabis concentrates, cannabis rosin, cannabis edibles, cannabis, you name it, suppositories, you know, the whole nine yards. Um, but at this point in time, if somebody was selling cannabis flour, I don't know if there's much Gary Payton could do about that in federal court. He might, he probably does have an attorney that has, a, you know, an imposing enough cease and desist letter where somebody who receives that, assuming they could be found, you know, which every, everyone can be found nowadays. Mm -hmm. But uh, if somebody got that letter, you know, they would have to, to have, they would have to decide, is it worth going up against Gary Payton and his attorneys uh, for me to make a few, a uh, few bucks, you know, selling his, uh, his strain um, federally. But if, if Gary Payton makes available the clones and you grow those out, um, he's going to need, I think, a federal registration in order to really put the fear of God in, in operators. I mean, as you know from menus around Michigan, there's a bunch of different strains that either do or don't have some level of trademark protection that are being sold by licensed operators, licensees in Michigan. Um, they're doing it because no one's made them stop. You know, the same way the gas stations are potential. So I'm told the gas stations are selling Delta 8, you know, to this day and probably some CBD or probably something a little stronger if you catch my drift. You know, it's like speeding. You go driving down the freeway, there's no cop, there's no ice, you know, you make it to your destination, no harm, no foul, you know. So the gas station is going to continue selling Delta 8 cards until someone from, it's going to be the CRA now, but until somebody comes in like asking to see their license. Um, so with with likenesses is, is your, was your question kevin so with likenesses you know obviously you have to have a pretty good claim to be able to exclusively use the name gary payton being named gary payton is probably like job one on that list but then you know going through the registration process is going to be something that's equally as important in it so that you can actually register wait the eight to ten to twelve months whatever it's going to be by that point in time for the registration to come through but you know, once you've submitted it, then you can at least in the letter to somebody who's infringing, you know, you can certainly talk about how everything is pending and the minute, you know, it's, it's resolved and it's issued in your favor, you know, that gives you rights to enforce it. And so somebody that's doing something, that's selling a strain in, in this kind of, kind of example, I just think they have to make a business decision. You know, are they making like tens of thousands of dollars an hour where, you know, I'm willing to do this until the wheels come off. You know, if Gary Payne wants to come in himself and like, you know, flip the tables, then I'll, I'll stop then. But, you know, some letter from his attorney I've never heard of, you know, isn't going to stop me doing this. It kind of remains to be seen. But, you know, I think in the cannabis space, there's obviously value. Um, that value has kind of been determined in large part by prohibition. But at this point, it's kind of, you know, it has different value drivers that um, investors and, and owners of companies obviously need to protect the same way they would, you know, protect their physical locations from improper entry or from, you know, abuse or you know, things of this nature. So I think there's going to be more of that, but the more people that can, can stake a claim towards the cannabis registration through hemp, through ancillary products, um, the people will definitely continue on that path. And 
you know, that's good for the, the federal registrar. Yeah, they're going to get application fees, but they're obviously going to get more workload. So the, there's a tension there where, you know, something's got to give. They'll either have to quicken up that process or, you know, if initially um, issue trademarks and then revisit them if there's some objection further down the road. Um, and I think there's maybe a move towards doing that where more there's a greater ability to kind of challenge a registration earlier in the process. So during this um, pendency where there is, hasn't been issued yet, hasn't really been reviewed yet, somebody that disagrees with um, so-and-so's claim to exclusively brand as Gary Payton, let's say it's Gary Payton himself, you know, he would have an opportunity during that initial process to challenge that registration before it gets to the point of being issued. And then he doesn't have to go to federal court to, uh, to enforce his rights. He can take it up with the registrar um, before that point and hopefully get the issue resolved. And it will uh, maintain the value in his brand. It, you know, it will minimize potential dilution to the value of his brand, you know, from, I mean, let's say somebody's uh, selling Gary Payton products uh, to children, you know, and there's some real negative association between that brand and what somebody who wasn't even authorized to do anything with it, you know, happened to choose to do with, with his brand. Um, he, he should have rights to be able to restrict that and maintain, you know, his family values if that's what Gary Payton's all about. Yeah, so Jerry Payton isn't enough. I see a couple of guys change it to Jerry Payton. <laughs> it's the first time for everything, right? Yeah. You gotta find out what's allowed and what's not. Yeah. You just gotta find a Jerry Payton. Yeah. Yeah, a real Jerry Payton. And then, yeah, played, played in the, you know, played middle school ball. So. Man, uh, I'm glad we did get into that. Um, you know, that's uh, we could we keep on talking. I have some other questions. We're gonna have to have you back sooner than later, uh, James. So um, before we go, I want to let everyone wrap up and say goodbye. Uh, Kevin. Yeah, it's great having James on. I have a ton of ton of more questions. I think we could do this for hours. But uh, yeah, it's it's very insightful to to find out. You know, my wheels are just totally turning right now about all the things you could potentially do with trademarking. So, uh, you know, initiating these conversations, I, I think we'll definitely get the ball rolling on, on uh, hopefully fixing some of those 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 timelines too. So, uh, thanks for coming on, James, and uh, yeah, hope to see you soon. And wish you the best of luck. Now having uh, full ownership of the Covert Law Firm, that's or the Michigan lawyers, uh, cannabis lawyers. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Hey, hey James, how does everyone get a hold of you? If there's, you're gonna, there's gonna I thought you never asked. You're not a trademark. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you can for sure hit us up at 517-512-8364. Had to double check. Um, or you can check us out on the web at micannabislawyer.com. Or you can check us out on Instagram at uh, mycannabislawyers, right? Or you can check out my personal Instagram at midmichigancansulting, C-A-N-N. Um, or you can check us out here at the office, 920 North Washington Avenue. I mean, I'm not the hugest fan of the drop by, but it depends, <laughs> depends what you want. Uh, if you, yeah. if you want to come in and, and bring, up, bring money in hand. Sometimes that helps. I won't, I won't deny it. Money or goodies, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. We, we like flavor packs. So we'll, we'll taste test with you. So, um, we're always happy to, uh, to meet new people, to find out what it is they've got going on, to see how we can be helpful. Um, I mean, that's, that's my goal is to try and be as helpful as I can in this role. Um, it doesn't do me any good to, to be right. You know, if, if being right is helpful to somebody, then obviously they need accurate information. And that's what we're all about, hopefully. But we are learning as we go along, you know, we learn every day. We'd love to learn here. 
So we're just uh, looking forward to the next kind of phase of cannabis licensing in Michigan, seeing how it, what happens uh, at the federal level. And just in the meantime, helping people kind of get cement the opportunities that they've built so far and seeing how we can open up uh, new avenues and possibilities. That's awesome. No, I appreciate it. And I uh, feel like people got a, got a free cons- consult if they listen to the show on this. So that's not that legally is, binding. No, not legally binding. And I got to give a shout out to Johnny over here, too. Uh, you know, when you come, when you call, you'll talk to Johnny first. And uh, he's uh, really, really uh, picked up his knowledge of, of the Michigan cannabis law here, too, in the last uh, six months. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, Johnny's going to yeah. get a couple of things squared away this summer, and then hopefully he'll be here with his P number or guns blazing, uh, ready to help clients and, and bring his unique take and his life experience. And um, Johnny is a, a cool guy. Johnny is a, a good resource, and we're very proud and happy to have him here. He's come a long way, and I know he has a long way to go, and I'm sure that he'll be well up to that task, and hopefully he'll be around for many years to come. Yeah, no, we got a, we got a great office here. I love coming to work every day, so... Uh, yeah, just another example of, uh, you know, some of the different, uh, you know, the different uh, professions in, in Michigan. So many attorneys, but James has obviously found his niche and, uh, you know, um, cannabis, um, you know, application work, compliance, trademarking. I don't think that's going to go in our lifetime. So um, we'll be doing it. So with that, next week's episode 99. Uh, tune in. We'll see you next week. The Smoke and Rope Podcast is produced and hosted by me, Ryan Basor, the owner of Redemption Cannabis. Have ideas for episode topics or would like to be a guest on the show? Contact us at ryanb at redemptioncanna.com. Thanks for being along for the journey.